Hey, buddy. How you doing? Pomodoro. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pomodoro method? Like the, like the, it, it reminds me of like bullfighting. Um, hmm. I feel like there might be a word in there, like picadero, but no. <laughs> Pomodoro, like a tomato, but it's oh, a, okay. it's a, it's a time management technique for people that are uh, focus afflicted like myself. So basically there's a period of, of time that you set for focus time. So I started with 15 minutes. So 15 minutes of work and then five minutes of taking a walk, getting water, playing a video game, whatever. And then 15 minutes back on, five minutes off. And then after, I think it's like the third break, then it's like a long, or after the third work period, then it's a longer break, like a 15 minute break and then get back into it. And uh, it's really helped me like tune my focus on Mm. working on one thing. I'm actually like now I can go up to like 45, 50 minutes. Depends on on what I'm working on, but I can go like 45, 50 minutes and then five minute break. But when I started, I couldn't go more than 15. So interesting. It's such a, for me, it's like I can go an hour and a half, pure focus before my brain shuts off. So like just hearing a different perspective on that, I think it's pretty cool. I won't try it. But, <laughs> but I'd, I'd like the suggestion for anybody else that might might need something like it. Yeah, if you struggle, if you struggle with focus, try Pomodoro. Get a little Pomodoro. kitchen timer. There's a lot of free apps. Welcome to, or welcome back to, more in common. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this is our experiment and conversation. See, everyone has a story that can help us learn from one another. Um, We bring people into a safe space that we have learned to create so we can learn about people's stories and get into difficult topics that challenge us in the conversation and ultimately how we think. And through having so many different conversations, we're really starting to see a lot of similar threads. And so now what we're doing is breaking down all these conversations to create tools and a map to help you become a conversation baller. And we always have to remind you, go check out our website, moreincommonpod.com, where you can find everything that is us if you want to learn more about us and, and check out our merchandise. Mm-hmm. So, Rodney... Um, we just we just released Mel Jones. Uh, talk to me. Would you would you would you take away from it? She op- or we opened the conversation talking about her answer to social justice, and she and we actually titled the episode "Make Better Choices." Though I think the way she framed it up was um, like she framed it up by saying, "This is who I am." Isn't the correct answer? Um, this this is who I choose to be. Is mm. so. Instead of saying, oh, well, you know, that thing when people say, oh, that was the time he was raised in or that, you know, that's because of this, because of that. It's like, well, if we're living intentionally, we get to choose how we show up every day. And maybe we're not where we want to be yet, but we've recognized that there's a gap and we're working towards it. And instead of just saying, well, I just don't like the brown folks. I don't like the yellow folks. So, that's just kind of who I am. Take it or leave it. Uh, I kind of, I really, I really like that, that the way she broke that down. What about you? It's uh, in line with that, right? When she said um, social justice is a choice when we asked her prior to actually uh, kicking off the episode. And it's just, you know, we talked about it in the episode and 
you know, really dug into it and I'm still probably grappling with it a little bit, you know, and the idea of it being a choice for individuals, maybe there was a choice at some point in the stream. Um, but I thought it was a, it was a point that definitely challenged the way I thought about it and continues mm. to challenge the way I thought. So I'm still, you know, formulating, um, you know, my mindset on that, but I just, I think it's a great representation of, you know, how we all do have, the opportunity to to expose each other to to different ways of thinking about different things in a positive way without you know i don't know if i'm going to fully agree with it but at the end of the day i, I just loved having the conversation with her which was the second piece of it that's the thing i liked about that episode is it very much mm -hmm. was just three people having a discussion right it, it didn't yeah. feel yeah. recording it or even listening back to it like it was an interview, you know, I thought it was just awesome. And, uh, with that, I think there, it was cool too, how there were some parallels to what she said with what Jansen said. Um, so I thought, uh, I always like when we have guests that overlap on their thought processes, um, mm -hmm. and some content, cause it just, you know, kind of continues to expose the, the commonality with us, with each of us. Yeah. And I do and have I, to make I, note. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that I think your point on social justice, like, I don't know exactly what you're going to say about it, but it makes me think. Like, oh, yeah, but I'm just one person. Like, if I change my mind, does that change social, does that actually change social justice? Right. And at the same time, if individuals don't change their minds, then it can absolutely never change. Mm. So, it's kind of a, like, both things need to happen. And But at the end of the day, it's kind of like you got to realize that I can only control me. I can't control you or, or anybody anywhere. So, all I can affect is how I how I think about it and then... Maybe I can influence other people, but yeah, you know, yeah, no, it's good. good um, the one thing I will, sure. I will reference in this is that when we recorded this, it was before, uh, Lamert Park was, um, released. So, mm -hmm. um, we're super excited that Lamert Park was released on Valentine's day. And, uh, if you haven't had a chance to check it out, you absolutely should. It is a hilarious show. Yeah, so, who do, who do we have today, man? So, today we have Karin Kusama and she's amazing. So, she is actually Phil Hayes' wife. That's how we met her. And we interviewed Phil a few months back. I don't know, he's probably episode... He was in the middle of 30, the summer. We actually released him. Was, I he think. Like, was he like episode 35? No, it would have been farther back. I think he's in the was 20s. Was it earlier? Yeah. In the 20s. So, um, she is the other, other, probably better half to Phil. Let's just be honest. And super, super insightful. Like, there were moments where I just felt outmatched because she's just really smart. And uh, I love that Phil teed her up for the conversation because he didn't really tell her who we were. He just said, you need to talk to these guys. And um, I love that. And we sat down and had an excellent conversation. I thought that was a, a very cool thing. Yeah, I thought that was a very cool thing how he, how she came in and was like, he didn't tell me anything. So, you know, what you got. And she showed up. Like, she was okay yeah. with it. It was awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean, what else about Karen? You know, she's an American film and TV director. Uh, she actually made her feature film debut um, in 2000 with the, the movie Girl Fight, which she wrote, directed, and produced. She's directed uh, the 2005 sci-fi action film Aeon Flux. Um, it was based on an animated series of the same name by Peter Chung and uh, the 2009 cult horror comedy uh, Jennifer's Body. Now, 
recently she's had some some uh, a smash hit in the 2018 crime thriller destroyer which is still out at theaters starring nicole mm-hmm. kidman um so if it's if it's in your area definitely look it up again destroyer it is unfortunately not in the cleveland area yet so i haven't seen it but i Rodney have seen has. it and i recommend it yeah highly without yeah. giving too much away i do recommend seeing it <laughs> so um, uh, it was it was a good it was a good so flick. so so Karen's awesome. Um, what did what did we uh, get into on this one? Family and career balance, family tragedy, and and the, the how that shaped Karen's life uh, rather drastically. The American blind spot, as we've named this this episode, and and how America looks at race. Growing up in a Japanese family and being like the only family, the only Japanese, only Asian family. Uh, what that was like. The dynamics of power struggle in groups, uh, fighting power, words. Uh, we got into words, so a little bit about political correctness and just how words aren't necessarily a reflection of your thoughts, but they could be. And having empathy with people that we disagree with, just like just a whole bunch of goodness. Yeah, it was an awesome conversation. So uh, buckle up, enjoy the show. Opportunity is sort of how you define it for yourself. I mean... Um, I have an opportunity to be close to my child right. and maintain uh, an open relationship with my spouse. I just feel like that's the opportunity that yeah. I keep wanting. And yeah. so I naturally keep finding it. Yeah, I just makes... reframe the, the question in yeah. a way. And I had one foot out the door of life, but I want to be here. I need to be here. I have a reason to be here that I need to keep exploring. And that urge, getting that urge kind of turned back on in this like really powerful way, you know, kind of set me on the path of actually being, I hope, to some degree, the artist that I am. And I thank him for it. Like it was such a blessing for him to teach me about how important it was to like actually feel what you feel. Welcome to or welcome back to More In Common. Uh, if this is your first time with us, thank you for joining. And uh, today we are with Karin, Karin Kusama. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Yeah, we're excited to have you. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a question based on an interview that you recently did, um, where you said that finding projects to shoot locally is important uh, so mm-hmm. you can see your family. Um, what's that been like to maintain that balance and uh, focus being a director? The the balance of having a family? No, to, to actually intentionally stay with your family while you're looking to build out your career, but while you mm-hmm. look to continue to be a successful director. Well, I think, I mean, I, I think the intentionality that you mentioned was just something that came to us as a family it it occurred to us that the business that i'm in of filmmaking almost demands you're never at home mm-hmm. and uh you know this is a, a a business where you just see a lot of wreckage um among among your peers within their families and it's a real um distressing thing to to see so much of you know just people who can't seem to maintain a level of communication or intimacy or um presence in each other's lives and so uh 
you know, Phil and I, my husband, we work together and we just decided we work together. We should just make an effort to be um, at home as much as we can. And when I say at home, I mean in the city of Los Angeles. It doesn't yeah. mean that when we're not that when we're making a film here, our, our hours aren't extraordinarily long and demanding, but at least there's nighttime to kiss our kid goodnight and there's the weekends and there's sometimes a, a random breakfast and a drive to school. There's just a, 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 a routine. And I realize um, this is a city I love so much and feel like is so rich that it's actually quite a tragedy that so much production has fled. So we just feel like we're doing our part on multiple fronts, but we're really serving the personal first. Do you find it difficult? It is difficult. It, I mean, yes, it is difficult. There's so many great projects that are shooting in Atlanta or Vancouver or Budapest or South Africa or, you know, I mean, at this point, Siberia, you know, like there's so many areas of the world that are trying to attract a film business. And, um, you know, when you get the call about a, a really interesting script that's shooting in Siberia, for me, it's like I'm I'm almost kind of like I'm not even going to read it because you don't want to be quite literally send myself to Siberia. Right. But it has happened <laughs> where you know you see people give up what they think might be months of their life that turn into years, and suddenly they're relocating their family or they're not relocating their family. And I just think that's a really difficult way to live. I just don't know how to do it. So do you think that, so will it limit, well, it limits opportunities, kind of, or does it? I mean, I think opportunity is sort of how you define it for yourself. I mean, um, I have an opportunity to be close to my child and maintain an open relationship with my spouse. I just feel like that's the opportunity that I keep wanting. And so I naturally keep finding it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I just reframe sense. the the question in yeah, a way. That's beautiful. I, I think that's a, I mean a brilliant way to look at it. And you know, it's something that has always been very near and dear for me is family first, mm-hmm. uh, especially having, you know, a 2-year-old and another one on the way. Like there are plenty of, and this is something that's, that, that traverses any industry is oh, yeah. how much do I want to sacrifice the family for my own, and I, and I don't want to be crass about it, but to, to achieve certain personal goals mm-hmm. and putting, you know, reframing it. Like for me, my number one priority is my family to your point. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not a sacrifice to not move to Seattle and go work at headquarters or anything like that. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting, like just last night, we had had a really nice meal out together with a, with some friends, and I was watching my son walking ahead of us down the street. We had just gone to this crazy ice cream store called Scoops, and uh, I used to take him, Michio, there when he was really little, and I was remembering this period kind of after I'd made my third movie, and I was really facing a professional slowdown um, just based on making two movies that were considered um, commercially unsuccessful or commercial snoozes. And so 
there was about a four year period where things were really slow for me and I was hustling all the time to get things made, but they just weren't coming together. And what that meant was I was spending time with my kid between the ages of, you know, two and seven in this very profound way. And, you know, at the moment that he was moving a lot and talking a lot and listening a lot. And it was like watching him like walk away from me, almost a teenager. I mean, he's going to be 12 in a couple weeks. It was like, man, I miss that time. Like I'm, I miss that time of such intense, um, togetherness and I would miss it no matter what. Um, but I'm never going to get that time back. Mm-hmm. And so in a funny way, what it really s- told me, like literally last night as we were just walking back from the ice cream shop, was thank God my life was so professionally slow. Mm. I got that time. Like, I don't have to miss something I didn't get. I have to miss something I did. Right. And I'm really like really relieved about that yeah. because some people I think don't. You know, there's so many ways that we miss our kids' first steps and our first, their first words and their first sentences. And I think this is a. a, a I'm guessing Keith asked the question because it's very uh, top of mind for both of us right now mm-hmm. with young children and, frankly, building a business mm-hmm. and um, trying to figure out what's next and like what that looks like. Yep. And um, and right now we're super fortunate. We both work at home. Yep. And get to pick, like, hey, we could have done this remote, but it's like, hey, I want to come sit down. So, like, it's during the day. She's at daycare. It works out. Um, but it's it's super pertinent. So this is this is a a wonderful um, it's a wonderful way you put it uh, on the reframe on the idea of reframing. Is that something? How did you get to a place where you reframed? Uh, well, yeah, I was gonna say, like, <laughs> do that with other things as well. Oh, yeah. or, and how did you kind of come about that? I mean, for me, I just feel like I'll be honest, like when I really just think in my gut, how have I had to reframe something? It goes back to being 26 years old. And my younger brother uh, who is, who was 24 at the time, uh, was living in San Francisco. Um, unbeknownst to me and the rest of my family had developed a pretty serious drug addiction and um, OD'd and died. And to get that call in the middle of the night and to be on a plane three hours later and to be thrust into a world of literally my world turning upside down my family turning upside down my understanding of you know right and wrong and how kind of faulty even those notions can be um everything turned upside down and i immediately was like this i I have to i have to make this more than just the pain that i'm feeling like literally how can i reframe this Mm -hmm. and so the concept of reframing as a coping mechanism is very um, primal for me. And in the case of losing my brother, what I learned was that he, he in passing away, so 
in such an untimely way and in such an kind of awful way. He was um, he was with a lot of people that at the end of his life were were you know they were all in the same shape he was and people make really bad decisions in those situ- in those situations and they're they're they they would appear to be behaving really badly <laughs> um, and in some respects that's mostly addiction talking but mm-hmm. it was grim and what I learned kind of like in this almost cellular way at that moment was well he always kind of had one foot out the door of life but I want to be here I need to be here I have a reason to be here that I need to keep exploring and that urge getting that urge kind of turned back on in this like really powerful way um you know kind of set me on the path of actually being I hope to some degree the artist that I am and I thank him for it like it was such a blessing for him to teach me about how important it was to like actually feel what you feel because had I not done that, I think I would have actually kind of died, if that makes sense. I mean, it was just so life and death at that moment. How long did it take you to get to that space? I mean, you say it's very primal for you to reframe, but such a traumatic event. I mean, it was within yeah. 24 hours, Oh wow! honestly. Oh, wow. It was that wow. intense. It was that kind of like, I'm here. It's, I'm, and it's as primal as it gets. Like yeah, it was, I, yeah, I was just like, I'm not going to like fuck around anymore. Yeah. I, I can't. I mean, the fact of the matter is at that time, I think there was also a lot of people swirling around in my life um, who, you know, to be fair, really lived at the edge. And I'd already lost one of my closest friends in college, my writing partner, to a drug overdose. And um, so even though I wasn't myself um, a drug user, or certainly not excessive, it touched me very quickly and very immediately and deeply. And um, in the hardest way, (laughs) you know, like the not an emergency room visit, just funerals. Yeah. And that um, that re that actually, without having to try, reframes your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I tried to, I think as a coping mechanism, see that concept of reorienting myself to our aliveness as a positive. <laughs> um, because in in recognizing my aliveness, I also have to recognize that you know not to get grim about it and i try not to see it as grim but death is around the corner for all of us we just don't know how long that journey is going to take sorry i hope that didn't like take you down a really intense path it's it's a really it's a really good i mean they're just looking at a lot of what we talk about and is very it it makes me um, think like what did that reframe like look like how did it manifest right it it it, you know you kind of mentioned how it got you thinking about life in a different way but how did it end up manifesting itself and you say it kind of took a different direction in your creative process but Mm -hmm. curious i think that was the point at which i was i was working for a really amazing independent uh filmmaker john sales Uh, who, as a filmmaker and writer, often tackles issues around race and American 
the kind of American blind spot, I want to say, around it. Um, And even though I was working full-time for him as his assistant, I just recognized at a certain point that the only way I was going to get done what I needed to get done was to commit commit myself to a larger goal, which was to be up between, say, six and eight in the morning before I went to work writing a script and then, you know, just looking at my own work as its own job and then, you know, doing the job that paid my bills and helped me put food on the table. But I, I had to recognize that 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 I needed one to have the other and I needed both of them. I couldn't kind of cancel one out. Um, Wait, say that again. So you said you looked at your doing your work as the job. Well, like I had to look at the component of my life, which was my own screenplays, my own writing as as important as the job I was actually getting paid for, because that was my first really like um, a job in film. I learned a lot from I got paid well enough to save a little bit like, you know, I wasn't living like penny to penny. And I really used to live that way. Like, um, there was a reason I lived in a communal household in Brooklyn, in Fort Greene, when nobody wanted to live there. I like I wanted to have my life be affordable. I didn't want it to get kind of get away from me um, in terms of just basic expenses. And it's so boring when I talk to like, you know, film students, and they say, what do you recommend? I'm like, learn how to survive. Like, (laughs) that's how you become a filmmaker, learn how to pay your rent. Because honestly that's a huge skill that will allow you to do the work you need to do and that's what i learned in that period was like okay i keep saying i'm going to make a movie yeah i have a full-time job working for john sales but i got to finish the script and i got to like work a little harder and i was in a i mean don't get me wrong i was in a crazy space i was emotionally probably a complete wreck but i was keeping myself on a schedule and I think that was part of that how that manifestation that you're asking about came about it was a sense of just I need routine and so if my routine is kind of punishing in that I'm up at 6am to be writing and then I get home at 7 o'clock and I just watch baseball for the next 4 hours which literally was my life like I just kind of became not a shut in but that was where my love of baseball was really um at its most profound and I just became a person who found comfort in like simple things like a meal prepared together or a baseball game on TV (laughs) and so I just I retreated into the things that gave me pleasure that didn't hurt other people or me if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I mean I could have gone a completely different direction and that would have been understandable too but I just decided I got to stay quiet if I'm going to like get through this. It's um, very similar to actually our last guest um, who we just released, who had a very traumatic event and went into a space of extreme control over the environment to Mm -hmm. manage and process um, Mm -hmm. every single day. It's very, um, it's, it's, it's nice to hear in a way because, you know, a lot of people probably do manage it that way and think it's something wrong with them, right? Yeah. Um, but there's not. It's a very common experience for people. Oh, yeah. You, you just mentioned the blind spot around uh, race. 
the American blind spot, as you called it. Uh, can you expand on that? I mean, I just think um, I am no expert. I just, but I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, um, the home of Ferguson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just think people don't understand that racism affects all of us. And I think we have this idea that somehow there's like the victim and victimizer, but the problem with something like racism is it, it everyone is a victim in some way of, of a way of thinking or of a way of being thought of. And so, you know, for me living in St. Louis, which, um, you know, remains one of the most racially segregated cities in America um, I just knew there was something really wrong. I mean, and again, I can't speak to it the way um, Jelani Cobb or Brian Stevenson can speak to it, but it felt wrong to to not see a, a black person for miles and miles. It just seemed bizarre and not like um, a functional... Um, representation of our society Mm -hmm. and so as a kid i always felt really weird about it we grew up in the suburbs eventually we moved out of the city into the suburbs um because my dad became an intern at a hospital and um we were closer to that house anyway he was able to like buy a little house in 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 a cute little suburb but we were the japanese family on the block and that was just a daily reminder of not fitting in, in quotes. And I just thought like, but why, why am I having to fit in? Like, who are all these people who eat like jello salads and call it a jello, you know, call it a salad? Like that doesn't fit into me. So I was really like confused by the, I want to say the near constant um, reminder that I was other. What did those reminders look like? I mean, we have so many examples in our family that we like laugh about it that um, like we were kind of the only Asian family in our neighborhood for as long as I lived there. So what was that? 20 years? Um, Yeah. Pretty intense. Um, And we we had a couple other black families. So, yeah, (laughs) you weren't alone. But it it was weird. I mean, it was really weird. And so then there was one family like a mile away that was like the dad and mom were Indian from India. And I saw how they were just kind of tortured in school too. And it was just like, why are we the ones getting singled out for having Chinese eyes or like we would be in a grocery store. And one of our favorite stories as like sort of like a laugh around the dinner table. It was like a friendly older white lady looking at my sister sitting in the shopping cart and just, trying to be affectionate and she just said well how'd you get chinese eyes and freckles and it was just like i don't know you know some mutant genetic mashup i guess like what how do you how do you answer that you know but but then just to realize that like race was always a thing i mean race is such a thing in america Mm -hmm. okay so wait real quick so on that like the blind spot because i have i have this conversation so much it it frustrates me uh with white friends that say well 
like we shouldn't talk about race oh. with all uh, we should talk about we shouldn't talk about it and and also like i really don't see it and i'm like well you're just lying to yourself because you do see it but specific or in not seeing it that is how you contribute to the problem i mean not to be well then you're complicit in yeah 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 i, yeah. I mean it was it's it's like for instance in grade school the way like i went to a school that was like a pre-k school uh to eighth grade but it was a private school initially um, that I got to go to a Montessori school that was far away, but my parents loved it. And I was, I loved it. And it was like all the grades were intermixed in that, like a sixth grader would hang with a first grader. And I just found my school pictures. um, And that was from pre-K through third grade. And pretty much the class was completely mixed. Some Asian kids, like I would say half or 40% of the students were African-American, Indian kids, just so many different kinds of kids. And that was my, that was my understanding of the world. Mm. And so then when we had to move to a public school in our district that was free and that was a good school and I understand every reason we had to go there, but it was like one of the most um disruptive and painful transitions for me to make as a young person that I remember all of a sudden I was the only quote different kid in school and it was like but that's ridiculous like and 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 I I mean I was sort of afflicted with the fact that I had like terrible vision and like coke bottle glasses by the time I was in fourth grade and I was the kind of person who would argue with the teacher about whether or not they were right or wrong. Like I was just that kind of kid. So it's like, I basically just had a target on my back. Probably. Um, I had this education prior to getting to fourth grade. That was about interrogating what people say and do and think and feel and ask if there's anything deeper we want to go to or deeper to discuss it was such a magical time that that education for me and I had so many friends who were older I had friends who were from all over and I had a lot of kids in my life who were African-American it was just part of my life Mm -hmm. and then I got to my like white public school and was just like oh this is such a bummer Mm -hmm. then I got to junior high and high school and that was like we were still, that district was still bussing kids in from the city. Mm. And that was just like the, the, the cultural and sort of social emotional divide from those kids was so deep that it was just like, what, what's happening? Like, it felt like such a wound. Like, I felt so um, discombobulated by it because I went from feeling like, I could be friends with anybody to suddenly there being a lot of rules hmm. that would mark you. And maybe that's just high school. Maybe that's just junior high school. Maybe that's just public school. I don't know. But it felt like such a failure of a larger kind of question or system at work. And so the blind spot to me is to say, learn about the Holocaust in World War II and learn about Germany's efforts to never go back, for instance, just to understand that there was a moral, intellectual, spiritual reckoning that had to happen. Mm-hmm. Not that that, not that, you know, far right 
movements don't continue to affect and infect that part of the world, all of the world. Um, but then to treat the long-term uh, historical experience we have with slavery as a, as a period that's now over is completely insane. Like the idea that we don't treat it as another kind of slow motion Holocaust that now will be have reverberations for centuries to come to not just embrace the reality of the pain, the tragedy, the like complete scarring culturally that has occurred is a crime. I mean, I just don't, that's our crime now, the crime of omission, the crime of denial, the, you know, it's, it's this dialogue. I have a lot, not myself, but other people will say, I, I just don't, why does it happen? Like, it just shouldn't be that way. But it is. Like, mm-hmm. and the reality is, it is. So, if it shouldn't be that way, what are you going to do about it to mm-hmm. make sure it's not that way for generations to come? Mm-hmm. Instead, the response is, oh, it shouldn't be that way. My life experience isn't that. So, I am not going to break out of my comfort zone and do something about it because the other side of that coin and this is where I sometimes find myself in it's like man seeing all this struggle that Mm -hmm. other people go through based on the way they look for Mm -hmm. no other no other reason just the way they look yep this is exhausting like and where I find myself in this quandary a lot right is Mm -hmm. I we talk about this all the time with more in common we have this conversation and there are days where I'm just like ah man I can't I can't do that today like I need to separate Mm -hmm. myself from it so to that I see how people it's like I don't want to tell my kids about it because they're never going to experience it why make them uncomfortable I want them to have a happy childhood and I don't really want to feel it today but I get that and that in of itself is the blind spot right in my opinion based on what you're saying is I don't want it to be true because if it is true it's exhausting but then again look at you and Rodney have to experience things that you would choose not to experience if you had a choice but you don't because other people have decided to impart their beliefs of negativity on you in some sort of interaction at some point in time to just remind you, as you said, Karin, you're, you're different. But see also this thing of difference though. I mean, it's, it's, there were plenty of times that weren't charged that were pointing out the difference. Sure. And to me, that's where the bridge could be. (laughs) But I just, like my brother, he was playing like, I'm trying to remember how he was basically playing like a game of pickup basketball because he wasn't particularly sporty, but he was. And it was like at a city park. And he was independent enough to be playing without like my parents right there. And he came home and he told us about how there were some, you know, he just got in on a game. He might have been 11 and a kind of a better player a black kid came up to him and said how you mixed and he was like excuse me and the guy was just like where are you from and he was like oh my dad's japanese my mom's white and he was like oh okay and they started playing again and i just thought that was such like we would say that every now and then just to like remind us about 
where we come from, which is that somebody's always asking, why do you look that way? Mm. And so it was, but somehow that felt less charged because there was a little bit more curiosity. Yeah. And there's something about the people who just kind of have to ask you in a creepy way, you know, <laughs> like, let me ask you something, uh, you know, yeah, well, or just that sense of just like, may I ask, are you Asian? Like as if that's somehow exotic. Diffuses it. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. I, you just kind of want to say like, obviously you've never, you know, I am half Japanese, but you, have you considered the you know like the entire nation of china like it's like this is such a bigger world than your idea of it and so yeah. that's the question i i found myself grappling with at a young age like well why am i different aren't you different like i mean you know it's like my my mom's side of the family they were all rural people in illinois they grew up on farms they've farmed land all their life um a lot of them were considered would consider themselves Democrats, for instance, if you want to get into the political sphere. But they still had they still became evangelical Christians. They still had um, like Sambo porcelain collections um, up on their wall. Um, they still called people in New York fags. Hmm. Um, it was intense. It was like, that was my family. <laughs> and so for me, it's like really painful to think I'm not that different. Like I'm not that far from them yeah. in terms of yeah. just where I come from. But I feel very, um, disheartened sometimes by by what that upbringing did for me because it just created so much distance it didn't create like you know grandma why do you use that word or why do you know like there there wasn't that um it's that blind spot that starts within the family mm -hmm. where you can't talk about stuff that's real and you know, think of the specter for so many families of alcoholism, of drug abuse, of sexual abuse. Sexual abuse. I mean, I just, I just think yeah. like, and that stuff is generationally damaging. It creates psychologies and ways of thinking and ways of having to survive and protect yourself that, that unfortunately are passed through a family like a virus. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that because... It only takes one to affect generation, multiple generations in a family. Absolutely. Slavery was a lot longer than a year. Oh, I mean, and that's the whole thing is that, yeah. so that's the, that's what I think is, um, when I, when I talk about a blind spot, I just talk about, I'm thinking about just sort of the relationship to the institution of slavery. Like we're, we're not talking about it. I don't know. Somehow I feel disappointed by the way we're talking about it. You know, um, like I wonder if kids are really able to make the connection. If, if they're not given, I want to say a meaning beyond just here are the facts, uh, you know, wealthy plantation owners wanted their land to be worked at the lowest possible cost. So they, bought slaves i mean like that makes no sense to me to just have those be the quote facts without a context about like a kind of um a moral context 
And I feel like that's somehow been systematically pulled away from Mm. that part of our education so that we never have to feel like there's, for instance, still a way that it's happening right now. Um, and, And that, I say, goes beyond race. I would say that's a class issue about... Um, you know, just the quote underclass. So, so in other words, having a real dialogue about the, specifically in the in slavery and the history in this country, sure, free labor helped build the economy, but it was rooted in this idea that black people were thought to be less than men. Yes, they were thought to be. I mean, the three fifths compromise. Yeah is a compromise to say you are three-fifths a citizen a human being and ultimately the the root of of looking at people in a way that but see and i think this is the um i mean when i say a blind spot around race i mean that actually to me when i really think about it is a larger like a much larger even question about the concept of cultural dominance in general because women are still paid less. Mm -hmm. Um, They are still on a criminal justice level, for instance, when it comes to things like sexual assault. It's an absolute travesty what's Mm -hmm. happening, what continues to happen. Um, And, you know, the thing that I've been trying to understand better is how how we can actually build coalitions of people who have always been told they are less than. And that's pretty much most people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's this this just like weird sliver of people at the very top still holding so many of the puppet strings. Well, and that to me is what is actually kind of mind-blowing. You know, like if... And I don't know the history of this, but I always wondered, like, what if, like, all those guys in the Black Panthers actually united with the burgeoning feminist movement? What could have happened if there was more conversation between men and women of different races, ethnicities, religions? What if they all had started talking, not to talk about their differences, but to talk about the the common antagonist because there's always a common antagonist and it's most mostly wealthy often white often male you know that's the it's it's a and and i think it's an economic system at work that well it's been put in place i mean put in place to victimize most people and benefit a very few and so for me i'm just kind of like why not why not get us all in a room to hash it out, you know? Um, I would, yeah. I would take it a step further and say, like, why can't we just, why can't, why can't we focus on our commonalities and figure out how we can work together better? Now, uh, there are some, there are huge issues that need to be addressed and there are economic systems and, and all of those things as well. I just, and and also our brains the way our brains were like we're yeah. we are <laughs> we are tribal beings yep. we we need our group and that group over there is out and and unfortunately it 
it's what kept the Panthers from connecting with um, many groups. Although originally they did connect with quite a few groups before it kind of got broken up and bastardized. Yeah. But yeah. no, it, it's it's interesting too. It's it's, it's a, what you're saying. The the nature of human condition is reflective in the women's movement today, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you saw. Um, one individual of, of uh, you know, Jewish women organize all of this stuff. And then mm-hmm. as it became bigger, she wanted to or was told she needed to incorporate some black female feminist leaders into the group. And then they created right. this power dynamic. And now it's yeah. the original woman can't be a part of it anymore mm-hmm. because she is going to marginalize the the black females like it happened back in the 60s and 70s during mm-hmm. that woman's movement and then and and it's it, it's breaking down be, yeah. even though they have a common space that they could Absolutely. they could live in it's breaking down because of the power dynamics of 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 the human condition and well and i would yeah. say though that 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 is both true the power dynamics of the human condition but also I think there are power structures that take advantage of 100% wield that human condition against humanity much more effectively than other kind of thinking bodies, governing bodies. And so for me, I think what's happening is it's very convenient and necessary for the people in power that Latinos can be have their own forms of racism that Asians have their own mm-hmm. form of racism there is it's it, it's it's crucial to the success of the dominant power structure that we all continue to inf- yeah because if you're fighting down here you're not going to look up and no out. exactly yeah. and so for me that's the thing that I get yeah. really pissed about yeah you know and I'm I'm flummoxed by it's it it's the whole coliseum it's the it's this is the distraction yeah. look at the super bowl look at the bright shiny object oh you guys go fight about this when that really has very little to do with the that you talked about i'm equally troubled to play devil's advocate against that argument i'm equally troubled by the categorization of identity politics and how mm. much it does feel like it is playing into that power structure without even seeming to realize it. And so for me, it's very hard when I feel like I can't speak about more complex or complicated or ambiguous or ambivalent issues for fear of being somehow punished for the words that I say, for the dialogue I'm attempting to have. And that's really... um, that's kind of a scary moment, I think, that we're in. You know, yeah. like... Um, it's I'm, one of the things that bother, uh, bothers me. Yeah, I think that's the right word about, like, political correctness. Yeah, it's very tough. It's, it's, um, it's very tough because I think so much of growth comes out of understanding sort of your instinctual emotional kind of life and how sometimes that's on the political correctness scale quite wrong (laughs) and and that's part of what you have to grapple with in an honest way you know um i don't know it's been a really interesting thing to think about as a woman um 
often defined as a woman of color, often defined as, you know, an Asian woman, I, 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 I bristle at being, frankly, reduced to those labels because I feel like I'm so much more, you know, mm-hmm. or I just don't understand why we have to spend so much time identifying ourselves. And, and you mentioned and, that in the interview, or at least they brought it up at the beginning of the interview, like, what, what, you know, I'm so tired of being asked about being a female director. Like, it's, it, and it, it is a reductive comment when it's made and I don't I don't necessarily think that's the intent no no um but I, you see it like oh and it, she, <laughs> like she's a good director like why right. why does that have to, she's such a good female director or uh he's such a good black quarterback yeah like, yeah 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 it's it's, yeah. it's it's one of those things that is to your point in politics, I mean, politics has, has created these, demo, you know, mm-hmm. polling, you know, anytime I listen to, you've got the suburban white woman and you've got the, you know, black females from the West Coast and mm-hmm. everybody, you know, this percentage, and then you create this in-group of 70% think this, but what if you're part of that 30%? And if you're part of that 30%, Lord knows you shouldn't speak up to the other 70% because they're only going to demean and diminish your ideas and yeah. thoughts around around that space and but at the same time to your point there it is destructive when we don't give space to the way people grow up or the things yeah. that people may think or say because they've never experienced something different so if someone comes to me and assumes nine different things and they make some comment and my response is to go shy away in a corner mm-hmm. versus and Rodney and I talk about this often this principle of what happens next yes. they hey wait a second did you know that that is not okay to say Right. Versus I can't believe you said that I'm I'm I think you're a bad person and giving that other person an opportunity to learn whether or not they do. That'll tell you what kind of person they are, but not the initial comment that ultimately it's about who we are, the intents that we delivered, not just the things that we say or things that we think, because they can always be. They, they can always be modified and you can always grow your thoughts based on learning from other people, right? And I, and I really do think that, like, this idea of words and actions, you know, um, I don't hold out a lot of hope for, say, R. Kelly's rehabilitation as God. a person. <laughs> nope. You know, nope. I'm not. Nope. I, <laughs> I also, I also <laughs> do not hold out any hope. Zero. So, like, for instance, I think. I don't want to hope for it. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, I, I think there are limits to our optimism. Um, totally. You know, because oh. what, what becomes clear is there's action that that is itself a power play. And I only bring that example up because he's been in so much in the in the news lately as somebody who has systematically been a sexual predator of young black girls. It, you know, it boggles the mind in a way because of a kind of um, a deep hatred and misogyny and manipulation at work there that that feels almost kind of unrecoverable, you know, and and. But when I think about people who, for instance, say racist things 
and don't think, that feels like, okay, this is where we, this is why policing language is so problematic, because you need to actually start interrogating how we come to even learn words. I mean, how we come to even understand um, the words we hear and the words that we use. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, and, and we, it's possible that we three here could hear the same thing and all interpret it differently. Oh my God. The same words and it could have three different meanings completely. I used to babysit for this amazing family on the Upper West Side and they were Jewish liberals with an adopted daughter from the like r- white rural South. And so they had a very interesting sort of beginning of an extended family and getting to know the adoptive family a little bit better. And, 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 you know, there's a lot in there that's just already complicated. And I have this memory of, or it was my sister. I can't remember. We both babysat for the same family. Um, And one of us used the phrase, okay, chop, chop, got to get going. And the lovely dad was just like, guys, we we don't say that phrase in the house. And Kristen and I were like, oh, really? I was just telling Abby to hurry. And he was like, yeah, but we consider that, you know, like a racist phrase against Chinese people. I was like, oh. Okay, like, I just was like, I've just had my own dad say, chop, chop, let's go, like, so many times that it didn't even occur to me that it was coming from, you know what I mean? And so it was one of those moments like, wow, that's interesting. Like, somebody's defining, you know, racism against Asians to 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 me. To an Asian. But but not in a... Not in a... I mean, he was just speaking his truth but i was like oh uh, that's funny i've just said those words for years i you know like it was just that funny exposing moment of like where did that become a thing like i missed that memo yeah and i'm still very curious i did not know that was a thing but see that's the whole thing i so i feel like a lot of us are missing memos and the fact is like why are we even assuming that we're getting a memo right because because you may not like i think i was saying something and i said uh you know call a spade a spade Yep. And I, I don't remember. I think it was. You're one thinking of, my, of a card. Yeah, I'm thinking of the card game, <laughs> yeah. like space. Yeah. And and I, um, I actually called him out on it. And like, I think it was you that said something. And yeah. like, I'm like, I play spades with my grandma from the <laughs> south, and right, I got that from her. Right, <laughs> like, right. No, I mean, so there's something really interesting about like connotations. But she got it from you know. Yeah. Like, well, but and don't we make room for? so many kinds of I don't know we're acclimating ourselves to our history sometimes unconsciously and this is part of the problem but there there's there's only so much we can learn and know in a lifetime you know and so it's this question of openness and curiosity and lack of judgment which is not a part of either this kind of alt-right resurgence that we're told is you know consuming the nation (laughs) um or the political correctness movement that we're told is consuming the nation you know like and so i'm kind of trying to figure out like how can we be just like a little bit more merciful toward one another and i think i think i mean and that's it 
and that's so much of the the correction that's taking place the the authority behind whatever it is you believe gives you somehow the internal authority to instantly judge everybody else who acts against that belief. And if you're on the side of progress, um, it's it's so important, at least in my opinion, that you don't do that. Right. Uh, It's asking that question to say, hey, tell me more about this or, hey, we don't say chop chop in my house or, hey, you know, have you ever realized uh, what spade a spade actually means? Mm -hmm. Oh, no. Cool. Um, Let's talk about it versus, oh, my God, I can't believe that guy just said that racist also to the point you were kind of making like, like, how do we learn language? Yeah. How do we interpret it? And yeah, there's this whole philosophical discussion about language just being our best guess at trying to explain the things that are in our universe that we yeah. get to see. Like, it's not perfect as it is. Not at all. Or definitive. It's not definitive. <laughs> and it changes. Like, one thing that used to mean something now means something completely different. So maybe in the context totally. you learned it doesn't. And, and assuming intent of someone else, it's like, well, I found it so powerful just to just take a second and just say, did you intend to? Did you intend to piss me off? Did you intend to right. to talk down to me? Did you intend? Like, Although, to be honest, think how hard it is to say yes. I did intend to piss you well, off. So, generally, the question is asked in a way that they don't have to get defensive yeah. to defend themselves, and they don't necessarily have to come yeah. out and say, "Oh yeah, I was trying to be an asshole." Um, where everybody kind of gets it, it's like, right? Oh, right. Oh, I could have said that a different way. Right. Well, yeah. There's a there's a um, a discomfort with conversations that really challenge an individual to interrogate what they believe and what they feel about the world. This is, and maybe not, I don't know if it'll be a conversation, but like this is the power of our relationship. Because like growing up in that and being a very um, rule-oriented human being, like that was my structure. So like, I didn't know anything other than, and then this dude starts asking me how I felt about gay marriage. I'm like, nope. And, and then five years later, I'm like, uh, okay, well like, let's start talking about it some more. And then here we are today. And I'm like, I, but, and you bring up the, the, the space, this idea of, of, challenging. The, it's really hard to challenge the way someone thinks and I think a lot of times these days we go into these frameworks of wanting to almost impart. And this is a, a very much a white Christian way of doing it when you think about evangelism and proselytization of, of, of mm-hmm. you know, European way to, to native way. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's yeah. this idea of how can you think that way, think this way versus, oh, you think differently than I do. So for me, so there are boundaries, right? And I, I think sometimes I, I probably overemphasize the idea that there aren't any. To your point, R. Kelly is a great boundary, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there He's are definitely one of my boundaries. <laughs> you know, there are boundaries, but I also don't believe most people can't be, you know, and I don't want to say persuaded, but can't be empathized with in some way. Absolutely. At least to, to share experiences that may take and this to Rodney's point about gay marriage 
this wasn't a single instance conversation where we both realized, okay, we're not, we're not doing it. We came back to it for about, oh, yeah. about a month and, and a half. Never, and then we disappeared we on it. me about anything. We were just right. talking about it. It was right. just, yeah. What you, I was giving I was, him my thoughts on it. He was giving yep. me his thoughts yep. on it. He never could come around to mine at that time. And I wasn't coming around to his. And years go by. And all of a sudden, like, it stuck with me. But then I brought it up one time. And Rodney's like, you know, I've, I've really come to a different place on that. And it was just, but it's such a great example of yeah. that very idea is just because you think a certain way doesn't make you a bad person per oh, se. God, no. it, there's a lot of stuff that gets you to a place where I've just met you and now let's unpack it and go from here and see what happens. We may never talk again. We may not like mm-hmm. each other, mm-hmm. but we can walk away with a little bit more respect or empathy towards the other person. As we're, we're coming up, I want to make sure that we uh, pay a little respect and Rodney has a <laughs> question about Destroyer, your, mm-hmm. your up and coming movie. Mm-hmm. Like, a wonderful movie. The main character, she is, um, I'll say prickly. Mm-hmm. Tough to get to know yep. and uh, hard to get to like. It reminds me of conversations I've had with my brother about Thor and Oakenshield in the Lord of the Rings series. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he's an amazing character, but his flaws are on his sleeve. Yep. And you see them. And so it's easy to point at him and say, oh, well, you know you're you you know you're prone to this. Don't do it. And then they do it, and you're like, ah, you're a horrible character. And it's like, no, but that's all of us. Yeah, yeah. Like with her, like how do you write a character like that, and how do you try to make her relatable, or him, or them? Mm-hmm. Like how do you how do you go? I mean, Phil and Matt, uh, Phil Hay, my husband, and his writing partner Matt Manfredi, they they wrote the script, and they had always imagined this woman as prickly, as you say, and um almost pathologically secretive. Um, but, you know, something that Nicole Kidman, who who played the role of Aaron Bell, the protagonist, something she said later in the process that really interested me was that she said, well, first and foremost, this is a character who's so emotionally shut down that she doesn't even know sometimes that she is feeling. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just such a, a kind of beautiful description of the character we were trying to explore, like somebody who's simply not in a very deep conversation with themselves. They're having a lot of chatter in their mind and a lot of regret and shame and guilt. But the process of watching the movie is about watching that character start to be accountable to herself. To work through that, yeah. And to actually recognize that a lot of her angst a lot of her pain a lot of her problems come from her she like is like all the, of them <laughs> pretty much all of them i mean she pretty much generates so much of her own most trouble them, I should say. and that's um you know that's a big i i would say that's a a big part of being alive and she's the kind of person in a kind of classic alcoholic framework mm-hmm. who places a lot of blame on a lot of other people and systems um, and conditions. And while she's not always completely wrong, she's definitely never completely right about that, you know, because the one thing she doesn't want to do is look in the mirror. Take responsibility. And so that concept of taking personal responsibility or moral accountability for one's own actions um, was sort of the, 
the overall arc of the film. And part of what we hoped to explore was how hard it is to do that. Yeah. Like, it's just, for a lot of us, it's really hard to take responsibility. It gets hard. So. like looking at Aaron, like I could see like the whole not feeling thing. Like there are periods in my life where I'm like, I know that was me. So I can see that. Yeah. And it's like, I don't like being reminded of that. But it's then hard. at the same time, it's like, that was really well done. Cause that's pretty much if I, if, if all of that was on my, on my jacket, that's probably what it would look like. Mm-hmm. It was the way it came across from her. So it was pretty cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, since we had a chance to touch on the movie, <laughs> good, good stuff. Um, as we're coming up on time, we always ask the, the one final question. If, uh-huh. if there's one thing that you like to leave people with um, coming out of this dialogue, what, what would that be? Hmm. Well, it's interesting because the answer kind of mirrors what I want to be doing with my work, uh, with my films, is to have the conversation end to the light for the lights to come up or the goodbyes to be said but a door to be opened you know to considering something in a different way or considering something from another point of view or even more radically imagining yourself not as yourself but as living in somebody else's shoes. And I kind of feel like that's what, you know, I hope this kind of conversation can foster and this kind of podcast encourages. But that's also what I just hope to be doing all the time in the work that I make. 